Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This is our league, and this is your league. From the 55-yard line on CFL America Radio and the Sports History Network. This is a league of A's and B's. It's green and red and gold and black and blue. This is a league with two official languages and many unofficial languages. It's East versus West, wheat versus iron, love versus hate. This is a league where superstars are extraordinary and ordinary at the same time. It's a league of ice, of fog, of mud, and wind. And for one Sunday in November, it's the nation's glue. This is a league as diverse as a country, a league of Jacksons and Kwongs, Johnsons, Moscas, O'Shea's, and Haji Razulis. This is his league, his league, her league, their league, and their league. It's my league, and it's your league. This is our league. Welcome to the 55-yard line, where today Scott and I are joined by Mobile and Daphne, Alabama native and CFL legend Bryant Turner Jr. From 2011 through 2015, Bryant spent five seasons in blue and gold, followed by two seasons with the British Columbia Lions. During his time in Winnipeg as a defensive tackle, he appeared and started in 71 games, during which he recorded 26 sacks, five forced fumbles, 75 total total tackles. He also appeared in three playoff games for the Bombers, including the 2011 Grey Cup. Bryant, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it and uh, hopefully get all you guys' questions answered, what I can bring to the table on CFL. You are, I got to say, you are our first pro. I don't know how it happened, but you are our first former football player, correct? Oh, nice. Scott? No, we had Matt down again. Oh, that's right. That's right. (laughs) We did. Okay. It's Monday. My bad. My bad. You're, you're, you're our first close to current former football player because <laughs> right. you, you haven't been out too long. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Nothing personal, Matt. I mean, you're, but, you know, speaking yeah. of which, uh, that was going to be my first question. I, you know, we had the Birmingham Barracudas back in 1995 during the, you know, the U.S. experiment in the CFL. You were only seven years old at the time and, and you know, living in South Alabama. So I, I guess probably the CFL wasn't really even on your radar when you were a kid. Yeah, not at all. You know, growing up in Mobile, Alabama, you know, other than Alabama, Auburn, you know, Iron Bowl type day, you know, football, you know, college football was kind of the biggest we had looked at or seen and really paid attention to. Um, Being in Mobile, um, I did not know anything about the Barracudas 
who were in Birmingham, which, you know, it's about a three and a half hour drive difference. Um, I feel like, you know, we had the Mobile Mystics um, hockey team in Mobile, which I bet, you know, a lot of people in Birmingham didn't know about the Mobile Mystics, Mystics down here. So, yeah, I didn't know too much about it at all. Um, even until I went to the CFL, I had no, not, you know, I didn't know any information about the CFL. I hadn't watched the full game before, just highlights. So, yeah, it was a definitely experience for me and, you know, had to do some research about the CFL. Did you have any particular teams, college and pro, that, that you grew up cheering for? Um, well, you, you're, you're made to choose, you know, being in, born in Alabama at an early age. And I lean more towards Alabama. Um, my family that I grew up with, it really, they weren't, you know, that hard either or neither went to the, you know, neither school, but just lean more towards Alabama. I seen Alabama to be the winning the most back then. And of course, you you just jump on the bandwagon as a five, six year old. <laughs> yeah. I guess as far as pro teams, New Orleans was the the closest NFL team to where you were. Correct. Um the Saints game was the first NFL football game I went to. You know, I had an uncle take me at a young age. And, you know, a lot of people in the Mobile area, you know, it's I think it's a two and a half hour drive, maybe less to get to New Orleans. Um, so you got a lot of Saints fans in the in, in the Mobile area. Um, I feel like in Alabama in general, you got, you know, you got your Saints and you got your Falcons. And then, of course, the fans. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the weird things about, you know, if you grow up in a state that doesn't have an NFL team, you just kind of. You know, it's like I'm a Jets fan, which makes no sense for someone, you know, born in Birmingham, Alabama. But, right. yeah, I mean, if, if you, you know, if you live in a state that doesn't already have an NFL team, I guess whoever just sort of catches your fancy when you're a kid, you know, becomes your team. And a lot of times, if you're like me, you, you stick with them for 50 years for better or worse. <laughs> right. And that's true. And, you know, um, I don't know, you know, it's a lot of supporting reasons. Like, you know, I'm just thinking of high school. Um I played play with a guy named Patrick White at Daphne High School. Patrick White was a great, you know, um, football player in West Virginia. And, you know, I had never paid West Virginia attention, had never seen a West Virginia flag. And then Pat went to West Virginia. All of a sudden, Daphne is full of West Virginia flags everywhere <laughs> on the cars and everything. And, you know, I guess being a kid, is it, all of a sudden you become a West Virginia fan. So, you know, you start to keep up with him um, after he's gone. And, you know, so – I feel like it's something so little to, you know, spark an attention that will continue to go, you know, on and on and then through generations and generations, you know, because, you know, I'm a big, huge UAB Blazer fan right now, you know, because I went there for Me one. Me too. Yep. And, you know, and, I'm, and my wife went there. She played soccer. So, you know, our, our girls that are, you know, seven and three years old right now, their biggest thing is go Blazers, you know, is go Blazers. And then they, they I think both of them lean towards Alabama after that. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I know. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Greg. Cool. I don't think Greg's there. Um, yeah, I was going to ask before we get into the uh, to the CFL part of your career. How did you wind up at UAB? I mean, were different schools were you know recruiting you? How did how did that process play out? Well, yeah. So basically, coming out of high school, um, first I went to a very good high school that had a really good football program. We um. We went to two state championships while I was there, lost them both to Hoover um, High School, which is, you know, a great high school. Um, anyway, basically, I had basically all of Conference USA offers. Um, and it basically boiled down to 
Central Florida or um, UAB. Um, I really wanted to go to Southern Miss. I love Southern Miss. Had a couple teammates that were older than me at my high school that went there. Um, and they, they offered never came. That was the one school I think in Comfort USA that the offer never really came. Um, end up choosing UAB, you know, proximity to the house. You know, my parents being able to come to the game three and a half hours versus eight hours in Central Florida, you know, was a big deal, I guess. And and I don't know, I feel like it had, um, UAB had a, I feel like I, we had a lot of potential. You know, it was nowhere near a powerhouse, you know, didn't have the facilities yet. Um, I had played in a junior all-star game in a Alabama Mississippi all-star game. In Alabama Mississippi all-star game, we actually had more players in the game than Alabama. I think we had seven, Alabama had six that was committed to UAB. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was the, it was great potential that, honestly never really folded out, but I seen that and that was something that definitely helped make the choice to go to UAB. Well, I know you signed, I guess, with Winnipeg in, in May of 2011, and that was the NFL lockout year. So I know you weren't familiar with the CFL, but if you could just kind of walk us through the scouting process of how, how they saw you, how you connected with them and just how it all played out as far as you signing with them. Well, basically, um, I, uh, correct. I came out doing the, the NFL lockout and the way things were working in the NFL lockout, there was, um, there were basically, if you didn't get drafted, you didn't have any communication with any team. So you didn't know if you were going to sign a free agency or not. And, um, I didn't draft it. So it was kind of like everybody went into the dark to see what was going to happen. Well, at this time for me, the CFL came calling, which I had never I had seen a CFL highlight or two on, you know, ESPN before, mm-hmm. but never knew anything about it, had never watched a game. Um, they came calling, I guess. Um, I found out that I was on the NAG list, which is the negotiation list for um, Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Um, so I ended up being called to a tryout, um, actually in Birmingham. They had a tryout in Birmingham where a scout came out, and then I was invited to a tryout in Atlanta where, you know, it was the second trial where the GM was there. Um, basically, ended up getting signing with them soon afterwards, basically. Um, so that was kind of my route to the CFL. It was honestly the next best thing for in my situation coming out during that lockout year, which, you know, I feel like it was a struggle for a lot of guys because a lot of guys kind of knew they would go or figured they would go, but nobody had any communication from the team. It was illegal. And it was just a, you know, you were kind of waiting in the dark. And I just kind of took the job security thing because I know I didn't want to sit around because I knew I would be working somewhere somehow. <laughs> and it was <laughs> like, hey, <laughs> I'd rather go with something for sure than to, you know, be selling cars with my dad for the next few years. So that was kind of the option I took. Well, you know, I'm thinking you, you grow up in Steamy Mobile, you go to college in Steamy Birmingham, and then Winnipeg which I assume was, <laughs> was not a place probably when you were growing up, you thought you would, you would wind up. What, what was yeah. your first few days in Winnipeg like? Well, basically, so when I first got a call about Winnipeg, I looked it up. I was like, well, where is that? You know, I had heard of like UConn, Canada, you know, you study the math in class. <laughs> you, know, I just, <laughs> I, you know, I looked it up and basically the first like hitter that, and popped on Google was like coldest city in the world. And I'm like, oh my gosh, well, you know, you know, it's gonna be a big difference from where I'm from. Um, you know, and just just so so small-minded and 
in a, and you know what's the word not cultured I guess so I was thinking like are they living in igloos up there you know what's the, what's the <laughs> I mean you didn't know that's the thing you had no real point of reference I guess yeah, had no point of reference basically this had any didn't have any idea how Canada was so anyway just looked that up at Google seen coded city in the world read some more articles clicked on some images like okay they do live in houses okay we're good we, we can I can do that you know so anyway end up going on I'm gonna pick my first day I don't know. It was a crazy storm. I guess they had had in years. The first day we flew in, it was crazy. Just coming in the airport, um, I feel like we had to speed up to land. You know, wind was blowing the plane left to right. It was crazy. Um, basically, getting on the getting on the getting luggage and putting it on where we needed to go and hopping in the van. The the wind was blowing the, the luggage down the street. It was raining <laughs> like crazy. It was freezing cold. Um, you know, and this was. Um, I think it was probably end of May. I think end of May or beginning of May, something when we were up there. So it shouldn't have been cold at all, basically. Um, um, it was the first day that the Winnipeg Jets had got back into town. So you had a lot of people that were just kind of celebrating and acting like ridiculous, you know. And I, and it just like you know, it was a it was a tough thing to come into, you know. It was funny because. Um, the guy that picked us up, it was a guy that walked by with like an old old Winnipeg Jets, you know jacket on like yeah from the old jacket. world hockey association right. days <laughs> yeah <laughs> and i'm thinking like i do they dress like this all the time you know what it is you know but he explained that the hockey team had just came back that day so that was kind of the day we flew in and i would you know of course i'm still you know sheltered only reading what was on google and then this is my first day i'm like this is this probably won't last a long time it's gonna be tough you know so anyway went on to be, you know, great. We ended up staying at a regular hotel, you know, with some regular people, you know, some Americans that I was kind of <laughs> familiar with. And, you know, it was, it was kind of smooth sailing after that. I honestly love, love Winnipeg and still love Winnipeg to this day. It's an amazing city with some amazing fans, very hands-on, which I think the CFL is a very personable um, game, way more than the NFL anyway. But, um, you know, we, we actually – intermingled with our fans I went to house parties with our fans you know we were invited to to Thanksgiving day went over and brought my family you know become this this great culture up there that you you I feel like it's hard to find anywhere else you know even in Canada you know I feel like Winnipeg specifically it's easy to find and get attached to your fan base and your group and you know become family so that was the experience yeah that's one thing uh, and of course I like I left all forms and all levels of football, but just just following the CFL as I, as I had you know for several years, it does seem more community oriented. It's almost like you know when you watch you guys play whatever the team is, whether it's Winnipeg, BC, Hamilton, whatever, that they right. truly are part of the community. You don't necessarily get that vibe with an NFL team. You know, there's more, I guess, of a, a corporate structure or or something. You know, I don't know, and whether that's true or not that's the same perception I had. Like when I watch a CFL game, it's like, wow, these guys, I mean, certainly you're playing for money, but you're, you're really playing for the fans. Right. It's a, it's a very fan connected sport. And you know, the, the, and I, I love that, you know, the beauty of it is the fans, they have access to it. You know, you can, you know, most of the time you can come watch a practice. You can get an autograph right there. You can take a picture with us right after, you know, and it's very easily accessible. Um, I was thinking about a guy, it's a guy we had on our team named Alex Super. Alex was a great um, cornerback, 
you know, that I played with for a while in Winnipeg. And I remember hearing that he was on his way to the game. Like, I think we have to be there two and a half hours earlier or something. You know, he's just on his way to the game. Seen some fans standing at a bus stop outside of his apartment complex and was like, hey, y'all going to the game? And they rode to the game with him. Oh, know? wow. <laughs> so how many players, how many, you know, how often do you hear that happen in the NFL where you ride to the game with your with the player on the team just because he was nice enough to stop and pick you up? You know what I mean? He's seen it with the Winnipeg stuff on and like, hey, these guys going to the game. I give them a ride, you know. So just little stuff like that. I'm sure, you know, Alex is one story. I'm sure it's plenty more, you know. Um, and I, I think that's the best thing about the CFL is just the, the fan experience and how much they get to engage with the players and follow the players on social media and actually intermingle and talk with them, you know. So I think that's one good thing. Now, it can't be a bad thing. You got that fan that's mad because <laughs> you missed the tackle. But, you know, ultimately, the it was, you know, it was a great thing for the, the big picture, basically. Well, one thing, obviously, there are some significant rule differences between uh, American football and Canadian football. Before you headed to Winnipeg, did you like sort of yourself a, a quick once over of some of the changes? And then once you got to, to camp and in the games, what were what were some of the rule changes that that I guess maybe you had the most trouble adjusting to? And then what are some of them that you really enjoyed that you thought maybe benefited you? Well, the biggest, I guess the biggest, Biggest change for me, which I really didn't do anything until I got to camp because I didn't know how to basically practice it. I don't know, is the yard off the ball. You know, in the, in the CFL, as a defensive lineman, um, you have to be a yard off the ball, you know, at the start of the snap. And um, that was kind of the big adjustment, which honestly I personally think worked out better for me. Um, I'm a, I played as a three – I came in as a defensive end – and was quickly moved to the three-take position as a defensive tackle. Um, I think mainly because of my speed and I had some strength, but my my size should have had me more outside than inside, but my height should have probably had me inside. So it's kind of like, a you know, that tweener vibe, I guess you got going, which the yard off the ball allowed me to use my quickness more than if I was right up on the offensive lineman. You know, I could set up different things to – basically take advantage of that yard off the ball, which actually helped me to uh, sustain and stay in the, on the team and in the game for so many years. So um, other than that, you know, it's the three downs versus the four, which, you know, can be a good thing when you're, you know, you're in and out in basically two plays on the defense and back sitting on the bench. Um, it's a bad thing when your offense is in and out in two plays. <laughs> <laughs> and you right back on the field and now you know honestly you get tired from running on and off the field basically um another big difference was i think it's, it's 53 and a half in the states and i believe it's 65 wide in the cfl which don't sound like much until you're running full speed you know that 65 wide becomes it feel like eight yard field wide you know when you're a defensive <laughs> lineman trying to run down the screen and um I don't know, you basically, your, your conditioning have to be a little bit better than it would be playing, you know, the regular state game because you're moving a lot further, you know, side to side. And also, you know, it's a it's an offensive made, you know, you know, it's the rules are made for the offense to put up points. And it's made for the offense to score. So you actually, you got to run to the ball being on this, you know, in this defense, you know, because they're going to complete a pass somehow, some way, and, you know, everybody have to get to the ball to get them down or they're going to take it in. So it's that's what 
kind of the bigger difference is basically you always have to be running, you know, um, which, you know, worked out in my favor, being a, a little bit smaller of a D lineman rather than a 6'3", 280. You know, I was a 6'2", 265 guy that could get the job done. I know when you watch a game, you know, if, if you just see where the camera is just down on the scrimmage, you don't really notice it. But when there's more of a panoramic view, you just see that vast amount of space. And I'm thinking, certainly you have to be in great shape to play the game of football, but it seems like you really have to be in really great shape to make it through an entire 60-minute CFL game for the reasons you mentioned. I mean, you guys have to cover so much ground. Right, right. And it's – um. And honestly, it's, you know, and that's just from a defensive tackle perspective, but you got a guy like a cornerback or a linebacker that, you know, guarding this, this receiver that's 5'3", 160 pound that can fly and he can hit the, he can hit the yard of scrimmage running. You know what I mean? Right. So basically you got this guy that's hitting the yard, you know, the, the line of scrimmage full speed and you have to be able to stay on him. So that's a tough position too. You know, I feel like you're going to find smaller, normally a little bit smaller corner in the CFL than you would the NFL because they got to be able to move, kind of, you know, be able to pick up and go really quickly and, you know, do it for a long amount of time. So um, I feel like their position is, you know, way more tougher than the, the defensive line and defensive tackle position. However, you still are running on the defense for sure. We had a seven year career in the CFL and, and I know you you know five years at Winnipeg where you uh, you know you consider yourself a blue bomber what are some of your uh, are there some extremely memorable games memorable plays or, or or just some things that that even now when you look back that really stand out for you I mean I don't know I guess every every um I don't know every game is almost memorable at Winnipeg I got a few I mean every sack of course is going to be a memorable thing. My first sack was against Ricky Ray, who's a great quarterback. Oh, yeah. In the CFL. He was with the Edmonton Eskimos. And, you know, this is somebody, you know, I'm coming in the CFL, I don't know anything, but, you know, this guy's very well respected. You know that for sure. So the sack them was, you know, was amazing. You know, um, um, Calvillo, Calvillo, if I'm pronouncing it right, from Montreal was another great quarterback you got to play against. Um, and, you know, to sack him was an amazing feel like, OK, I made a difference in this game, not only, but I got to sack this season player, you know. So all of those definitely stand out. I definitely remember Ricky Ray's. I think Ricky Ray's was one of my profile pictures for years on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good so, one to keep there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's it's it may, it, it's a it's those are big deals um, as far as Bombers game, you know. We had very dramatic seasons <laughs> with the Bombers. Um, mainly, you know, my first year we went to the Great Cup and we ended up losing that game. But the next four years we didn't we didn't make it to the playoffs, I think, or something like that. So, you know, we we had some very dramatic seasons. Um, that the year we went to the Great Cup, we were we basically by the grace of God made that work basically because it was we could have won this game easily and lost it and it would have put us here and. We end up coming out the first in the East, I think, by like basically three or four teams had to lose that you made that that shouldn't have lost that made us, you know, make it work. So it was a very up and down season at the, you know, emotionally at the end, towards the end of that year, because it was little games we could have won that we lost. And the, the ones that, hey, you win this one and we're good and we we lose that one. And, you know, so 
anyway, we made it work, you know, went and we had a great team, just, you know, young and I feel like not too much discipline, honestly, but had a great team, had a great group of guys. That's when we were Swaggerville back then on the defense and our defensive, um, our defensive coaching staff and like our players were just ballers, just, I don't know. That was that was a year to remember, basically, because our defense was so good. We were sacking the quarterback almost every other play. We were getting interceptions almost every other play. It was just amazing, you know, as a defensive statue. So that's that's a year that definitely stands out. Um, I guess other than that, um, I had a I, I like we changed the uniform. They went to those retro uniforms for a second. Oh yeah, and everybody in Winnipeg hated it, which I personally <laughs> liked those uniforms. <laughs> that was. Un- one of my favorites. I remember the pants felt so good. The pants felt like you were almost wearing nothing, so you could move so good in them. And um, I love them. And we end up winning the game, and I don't think we ever wore them again. And the fans just think they didn't have enough blue or something like that. I don't know, but that was a great game. I remember that game like it was yesterday, you know. Um, I think we played as a great team game. So, you know, it's little stuff like that. Um, Grey Cup is a sad memory. I ended up getting a bad eye injury in the second, the beginning of the second quarter of the Grey Cup and was out the rest of the game. But, um, you know, it was a, it was a fun experience. We were there for a week in Vancouver, which I told you guys earlier, I love Vancouver city. So little stuff like that stand out for, but, you know, I guess that I can think of off the top of my head. Well, have you stayed since you retired from the game? Have you stayed pretty involved as as far as following the CFL and, and following, I guess, the, the Blue Bombers specifically? Well, I, I was more than I am now. Now, you know, I'm selling real estate and I can get pretty busy at times. But I was – I still try to keep up with um, the CFL as much as I can, especially the Bombers. I was extremely happy they won the Grey Cup. You know, I felt like, for one, the fans deserved it. I felt like, you know, they had finally figured out, you know, the things that could make happen for the organization because honestly it was a quarterback you know just the I mean I was there five years and we we had 14 starting quarterbacks in five years 14 quarterbacks started the game yeah and a lot of people don't talk about that but in five years 14 quarterbacks started a game at Winnipeg 14 and basically you know you get out there we were and just a I mean just a little quick I guess memory I guess the little facts I guess me and um, me and Clarence Denmark was a receiver. We came in together um, for the 2011 year, and we actually got released together five years later. We were the last two on the team from 2011, um, and that's that's including everybody, um, head coaches, assistant coach, everybody. We were the last two. Clarence ended up oh, wow. getting signed back the very next year. But basically, we went through a complete different organization when I personally believe it was one player that we had to figure out. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> but I mean, not to knock anybody, you know, everything worked out. But, you know, it was obvious they got one. Um, Matt Nichols basically helped take the Bombers to where, you know, to their Grey Cup. And I, I feel like he did a great job of doing that, you know. So, um, I, you know, I was extremely happy for the fans that these fans continue to show up at games when I feel like as a player and, you know, as a organization, we had let them down multiple times over the last few years, you know? So that was, that was a good, I was, I was very happy about that. You know, it's uh, just looking at your career, you, you're an all state performer at Daphne, the, the UAB. And of course UAB had some, some pretty lean years while you were there. 
but then you end up being in a CFL all-star at 20 in 2013, I think it was. Did you kind of feel like that you'd sort of come full circle at that point? You know, I mean, that had to be a, a, a huge thrill to be a professional football player and to be recognized as one of the best in the league. Yeah, it was, you know, it was a, it was a big deal to me, you know, just personally, because like I said, I went to a great high school that had a great organization, um, you know, very well ran. My Honestly, honestly, my high school program was probably better than my college program at UAB. Just um, weight room wise, the way ran things, it was just top notch. Um, you know, we went through the building years of UAB and, I, you know, I don't mind it looking back because I see where we are now. We got a brand new stadium, brand new football facility great coach that was coach of the year I think two years in a row you know so I, I don't mind paying that price for what we have now because I get the <laughs> benefits of it pretty much but then to get to the CFL it's like okay you go from this great program where you know we win and I think I lost five games in high school total I think something like that and then you go to the to UAB where we rebuilding and I think I won five games you know what I mean? <laughs> so, rebuilding you know, and a coaching change didn't didn't you play for Watson Brown your first year and then Neil Calloway after that yeah so I was redshirted my first year and it was all under Watson Brown and then I was there for the whole time with Neil Calloway playing and um you know it was it was you know not talking bad on my coach it was it was a good atmosphere but I thought things could have been a lot better personally you know what I mean looking back but you know I'm a I'm a player and that's what I was my scholarship was paying me to do. So I, you know, went to work every day and did the best I could. So anyway, you, but you go from that to, you know, you start to almost doubt yourself, like, hey, am I not good enough? What am I not doing? Blah, 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 blah. And you feel that you are, but then you go to, you know, then I get to the CFL and it's kind of solidified. I think the, I think I made CFL also one or two years. I can't remember. And I think the year I made it, it was, I was the only one on the team for Winnipeg. It was my second oh. year. Yeah. I was the only CFL also on the team. So it was like, okay, I'm, I'm not crazy. I thought I was doing decent. Then <laughs> 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 I my work ethic, you know, you've seen this payoff. And of course it, you know, it definitely gives you a boost to say, okay, I'm not crazy. I have been working hard for a reason and it's starting to pay off. So it definitely helps, you know, help, to, to see that happen basically and honestly to me as a player the CFL all-star was good you know and it was fun but the best all-star I feel like you personally can get as a player is the um is the the um what's it called when the players vote on you you know oh yeah yeah all-star I can't think of the CFLPA all-star um I think I got that twice I believe and that was like the biggest that's the that's the one that I about you know honestly I think well, those were those were the guys that you hit that voted exactly. for you. So that's <laughs> exactly, and that's the respect that you want as a player. Because I think it's what coaches and media that vote on the CFL also, if I'm not mistaken. But the one you want as a player is the one where the players vote on. So those those were huge deals to me, you know, personally. Well, if you know the CFL lost a year due to the pandemic, which you know wreaked havoc on all sports, and then there was that talk about you know the XFL possibly getting in bed with the league. Did you pay any attention to that at all? And if so, did, you know, when you first heard about that, did you think that might be a good thing? Or were you hoping that the CFL could just kind of make their own way like they have for, you know, however many years? Well, it didn't, I mean, anything that benefits the player players I'm going to be for, um, I feel like I personally, you know, I briefly paid attention to it. 
I felt like the CFL has been doing good. I feel like the XFL keep coming and going like all these other leagues. You know, we had the Birmingham Iron um, come through. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can. I'm sorry. I, I, okay. I lost. All right. You're muted. I think we just lost. I think we just lost Scott. Okay. <laughs> well, that's okay. Keep going yeah. because I was, uh, you know, people were wondering where I was at. I got kind of yeah. called away uh, on, for my job. When we, we when you going. and Scott were talking, so yeah, um, yeah, no, keep going with about the exit. So, as far as the X, can you hear me? I can hear you. Yeah. Okay. Basically, as far as the XFL and CFL, I just feel like I feel like it can get. I don't know what's the word. It can get messy when you get you know two leagues trying to do you know incorporate or become one or do something together. I feel like the CFL has been doing good on its own personally. Um, and I think I mentioned the Birmingham Iron, they came and left. And, you know, I feel like those XFL things just come and leave. You know, the CFL didn't sustain itself for so many years. And, you know, I feel like they'll they'll be fine just by themselves personally. Right. Do you, I mean, with the XFL, did you get the feeling like with these leagues that come in, not even so much with the XFL, that's part of it, but say with the USFL supposedly coming back, almost too good to be true. I mean, I know a lot of people want spring football, and I know now that we have Scott back. Uh, apologize, Scott. I think you were, <laughs> Sorry you were about responding that. <laughs> to something I sent you. Um, but with these spring leagues, I mean, we all love football. I mean, God, right. I mean, to me, I'm you know, you're probably the same way, and I know Scott's the same way. Hey, football, 20, 12 months out of the year, perfect. But when it comes to spring football, especially in the United States, not a great track record. So, do you see? Do you feel like with these the talk of XFL 2.0, and obviously you remember the first XFL way back when, and I know you were younger, but do you feel it's almost a case of this is great, and looking at it as you know as, as a player, as somebody, almost is too good to be true? It's is there? Do you think there's an, a, a hesitancy with people with with guys going to these some of these leagues because not knowing if they'll be around? I personally do because I feel like they're, you know, and I'm in a real estate now, and you know, you have a lot of my brokerage. I don't know, is one of the biggest in the state. Is actually the second biggest in the state. Um, the guy who started our brokerage has been in real estate for 40 years. He called them disruptors, you know, and I feel like those are just disruptors that come and leave, you know, just like a new brokerage will pop block next week. And they start doing pretty good in business, and then all of a sudden they're shut down. You know what I mean? Right. It's just, and I personally get that feeling from the XFL and you know, and leagues like it because I I'm not I don't want to down it because it's they're great things for players sometimes, but I mean just like the Birmingham for you know I can't remember the name of that league. What was the name of the Alliance of American Football? That's why. So that league came through. I remember going to one of the board meetings, I think two weeks before it shut down, and they was talking about, you know, everything's looking great. You know, um, they had a bailout somehow with a lot of money and, you know, everything's right and everything's on this. And, I, you know, two weeks later, it was shut down. <laughs> you know, one, one of my great friends, one of my good friends had just got signed to the team and never got to play because he was shut down before he was able to play. So I just feel like, when stuff like that happen, they get a bad reputation. And I feel like that's kind of continues to happen. So I personally think, you know, and too much of a good thing is not a good thing. I feel like, I feel like, you know, I feel like we're trying too hard to have year round football 
when it's been going just as good the way it's been personally? Yeah, I think, you know, Greg and I have talked about it before. And, and yeah, the concept I think is great. But as he said, it just doesn't work. I mean, we've right. tried it over and over and over again. And there's right. just, I mean, yeah, if you got a gazillionaire that wanted to just put all their money behind it, you could make it last. But at some point, it's got to be viable. You know, at some point, you got to know that, you know, th- that the novelty is not going to wear off. And that seems to be, I mean, you know, you'll have these leagues and they'll start in the first couple of weeks, they draw well. But then you get to the end of the season, if they make it to the end of the season. People aren't watching it on television. People aren't showing up. And, and I think, Brian, you may be right. I mean, it may just be a situation where, you know, we've got high school, college, NFL, CFL, and maybe that's enough. Maybe during the spring you can just watch baseball and rugby and yeah. soccer and, and be happy with that. And let's not forget we got indoor football too. I mean, to me, sure. and as much as I'd like to see spring football and on social media, I get very – how do I want to say – I for lack of a better term, I get a little pissy with a lot of speculation about, say, the XFL. Oh, this and that. And the reason why I get that way, and I don't know if you guys would agree or not, is is you're getting people's hopes up for something that may not happen. Right. And while, you know, and especially amongst the younger guys, the players who want to play pro football and see this as an opportunity. And Scott and I are old enough to remember, you know, we're, we're, we're of an age now, and I hate saying that, but it's true, where we've seen these, these other leagues. Okay, so the World Football League, a year and a half. USFL, three years. XFL 1.0, one year. And now the shelf life on these leagues has gotten shorter on the outdoor leagues. The indoor leagues, it's, I think it's a little bit different story. But to me, when it comes to the spring leagues, it's much like when we went to Iraq in 03 and I would sit in there in, in meetings and nobody would answer the question, okay, well, we invade, then what? And there's no then what in terms of how to build on the success, say, of that first week. Right. So, and that's just my opinion. But and, and I mean, to add to that, you know, I look at it from the players that's playing in these leagues, you know, personally, you know, not to offend anyone because I had friends that play and I still do, but it's just like – these are most of these players are desperation players that, hey, I think I still got it. I'm gonna get this one last chance. And honestly, I just don't think it's to their benefit, especially now that I'm out of football and kind of see how things work a little bit better. Cause, you know, and I love it. You know, I was watching the Winnipeg game the other day and I'm like, man, I love to go back and, you know, run another plays. And, and I'm personally sitting here in town with my family every night making more money than I make made playing <laughs> and still want to go take another snap. But ultimately, that's not benefiting me or my family by going out there in desperation trying to, you know, do something that, you know, I really probably shouldn't be doing. So I just think for the player standpoint that we should, you know, we're hurting them also that, you know, are trying to do something out of desperation rather than what they probably should be doing personally. Right. And the Alliance, I think, of American football is a classic example. I mean, it's, it's literally a cautionary tale for everybody, not only for people investing in these leagues on the business end, but like you said, the players. Right. And I, Brian, I was going to ask you this because I know this used to be very prevalent in the CFL. Even when you played, were there still guys that held other jobs, you know, to kind of supplement them? income or was pretty much everybody on your roster just football only no it was um plenty of 
I would honestly say 80 to 85% probably held other jobs, you know, hmm. mainly because they had to, to and I, I will give the CFL credit about that. You know, they only can technically have a, you know, well, when I was playing, I'm not sure how much it's changed for about four and a half hours a day, technically, um, you know, as far as when we had to clock in and when we technically had to clock out. Now, you know, most players are there seven, eight, nine hours, you know, doing other stuff, getting therapy, you know, weight training and stuff like that. However, their reason for doing that is so guys can work on something else. You know, if they got a second job or if they're doing something, you know, back home or something like that, basically. And that's their reasoning, which it should be when you're not making that much money to sustain yourself in a family, you know, as a grown man. But yeah, honestly, it was it's, it's weird how it worked because I thought it was kind of unfair because you have the top players that make a dollar who can focus on football year round, you know. My first two years, I wasn't one of those players. <laughs> Luckily, I was my first year, I was still living with my parents. And my second year, I don't know, I, I had to make something work, something like that. But anyway, um, we so then you make it to the top, you know, over 100,000, where it's like, oh, I think I got enough money to live in the offseason. And I can focus all my time on working out and getting ready for the next season. But you have that player that's making 50 or the minimum, you know, you break it down in the States, you know, when you transfer money, you're making 35, you know, that, Hey, I got to find a job in the off season. So he can't focus as much time on football as he did feeding himself and his family. So it's almost like the better keep getting better while the guys that's trying to get in don't have the time to, you know, get better. So it's, it's, it's a, it's a tough situation. You know, guys figured it out and it's part of being a man and playing football but it is a tough situation, you know, that I honestly, it's, it's not too fair, you know what I mean? Which I feel like is that way in everything, but it, it's, it's not really. Well, in this, while you were in the CFL, is that when you developed a, an interest in real estate or, or how did you kind of segue from, from being playing to what you're doing now? So, yeah, I actually, um, it was, it was when I was in the CFL, you know, short answer was um, I was, it was doing the off season, you know, I wasn't doing anything but working out. I had my, my daughter, my wife, my wife is a school teacher now. So it was cool because in my off season, I basically, I took my daughter Mother's Day out. <laughs> and then I would go, <laughs> I go work out for three, four hours, come back and pick her up and spend the rest of the day. My daughter, you know, I was, I was living the life there for a couple of summers, but um, we were eating. I had picked her up. We had went to eat breakfast at like a little breakfast spot in Birmingham. And of course, you know, walking around as my size, people are going to ask, are you, you do you play football? Do you play for the, you know, something like that. So I always get to talk about sports when I'm with, you know, out in public normally. Anyway, um, it was a guy that owned a real estate company in Birmingham. He just happened to be sitting behind me. We talked about it. And, you know, I had already thought, cause I knew, you know, I feel like I'm one of the blessed ones that was blessed with, like, I only got about two more years of this thing and then I'm going to have to wrap it up, you know? So <laughs> I knew I had about two more years left in the CFL. I knew that, like I knew from the big, like it, was, it worked out perfect basically. So I was starting to look for stuff after football. Like it had started getting real to me, like, okay, I need to really think about this. Um, I did want to be a strength coach. That was my goal to be a collegiate strength coach. Um, that didn't work out. Um, basically I, I was doing that outside of, after college, end up signing the CFL because you had to basically pass this test to become an a, a NCAA strength coach or whatever. Um, I failed a test. The next day I signed with Winnipeg Blue Bombs, you know, the rest is history now. And, you know, I could have went back and tried that route again. But basically, I after playing football for so long, it's like, all right, I really don't want this life. 
like I don't know if y'all know about football coaches' lives, but they don't have one. Basically, it's it's all football. They don't see their family at all. They move a lot, and it's not really what I wanted for me or my family, which made me go away from football and start thinking, of, you know, other sources. So anyway, running into the guy, you know, he owned a real estate company. A guy named Randy Brooks owned a Bass Realty in Birmingham, Alabama. He talked me in again my license, and literally, like, I sit down and talk to him at breakfast. I think I was in the class like the next week or so. So, you know, getting my license. So, finished up the license, um, got the license, and then literally, like, two weeks later, left to go go back to see it. You know, to Canada for the season. Yeah. So that's wow. what kind of segued me into real estate. Wow. And you found your life, and really, football prepared you. I'm reading a book right now on Chuck Noll biography. And his, his saying was your, your life's work and football, you know, football led you to your life's work. I mean, you're successful right. and, um, and yeah, it's just, it's incredible. The opportunities, just hearing your story and the opportunity by just sheer chance being out with, uh, being out with your daughter where right. it's all led you. <laughs> yeah. And, and it really has, and it, it, um, you know, and I'm a, I'm a believer, you know, and I, I, I think things are done purposely and, you know, things fall in place and I really rarely worry about anything, you know, whether it's money or whatever, just because I, I feel like my faith is that strong. Um, however, I remember when I first got into real estate and I want to say this for the players that could be watching this, this podcast or listening to this podcast, but when I first got into real estate, the guy who started our company, I had mentioned him earlier. His name is Tommy Brigham. Been in real estate 40 plus years. Two successful. I, I see we're the second biggest company. Well, the first biggest company in Alabama is the company that he sold. <laughs> so yeah, we're the second. So obviously that says a lot about him. Anyway, he kept telling me like, he's like, oh yeah, man, you, you're great for real estate. You, um, you know, you got the work ethic, all the stuff you learned doing sports and all this different stuff. Um, you, you, you you know, you're a go-getter. And I'm like, tell me that sounds good, but I don't have any clients right now. It's not, I don't have any money, you know? Like, And I kept hearing that. I kept hearing that from him. I heard that from other people. And I'm like, what does work ethic and, you know, what does this have to do with having actual clients to sell a house to the money? You know, how does that correlate? Well, it does. You basically get in real estate and you start to notice like, man, this, the things that, you know, 40, 50 year old people are learning, like, oh, I, I need to make a schedule and I need to start doing this. It's like, I've learned that already because I've been drilled. It's been drilled in me as an athlete for years and years. And years. so, you know, I know I have to get up early and make things work. And it's so, it's so second nature that you, you basically, um, as an athlete, you have these qualities that you don't really know you have that's going to make you successful in whatever you do. And I always tell that to players that still playing, that scared of, you know, what I'm going to do after I finish. I'm like, don't worry, because it don't matter what you do. You're going to be very good at it and you're going to continue to move up. And it's basically been that way with me, basically. And, you know, what they were telling me was telling me the truth, but I just didn't see it at the time. But yeah, so, you know, that's kind of my pitch to the other players that's listening. Like, don't be afraid because I'm telling you, you have the qualities it takes to do um great in whatever you choose to do well hard well hard work and the will the hard work and will to, will to succeed is already ingrained in right. you as a football player 
I know right. on the military side, you know, my prior to me retiring, um, you know, those same things were ingrained into me. So I've saw people worrying about that transition from military to civilian life. I'm like, you're already ahead of the game because yeah. you know, you know, like being a football, like being a football pro- professional football player up early, got to play hundred percent. Otherwise you're going to lose your job. So you, exactly. the, yeah. You get instant feedback in football. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you get instant feedback. And that's one good thing about football. And it makes it, you know, you build tough skin. You know, when you miss a tackle, you know, on special teams, especially, and you having that team meeting where in special teams, pretty much the whole team is in there, and you get caught out, you know, that that's that's the that's when you put it on the spot. And you know, so in the business world, I get called out of sales. I mean, that, that don't make that make any like it don't make that's fine. You know, I, I can sleep through that. You know, that's easy. So it's little stuff like that that go a long way. Well, I know we're getting towards the end of this, but I got to ask you: Are you going to be at a protective stadium this fall watching the Blazers? Oh yeah, I'll be there um, <laughs> first game for sure, and I'll um, I'll be in Montgomery September first for the the first season game. At Crampton um, Bowl, JSU. Yeah, Crampton Bowl, and I probably would have went to Georgia, but we got a birthday party for my daughter. I couldn't get out of. <laughs> I ain't watching on TV. You can sort of look at your phone. <laughs> yeah, we have a, my youngest daughter turning four, so I missed the Georgia game, but we, it will be on the TV for sure. Yeah. Sorry to hijack it there, Greg. I had to get in some UAB stuff while I could. Right. <laughs> oh, no, that's <laughs> Hey, I love hearing you guys talk about Alabama football. Yeah, you know, I'm yeah. in Illinois, so in terms of our football up here, we don't have much to, to talk or brag about, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Except maybe the Bears, but we'll see. And as far as Illinois Northwestern and the rest of them, yeah, not so much. Right. <laughs> well, Bryant, hey, thank you very much for joining us, and uh, hope to be talking to you very soon. Thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it and really enjoyed this. We did All too, right. Brian. Thanks so much. All right, y'all have a good one. All right, you too. too. And for everybody listening, hey, uh, we'll see you next time. Fight down the field yard by yard Let's fight down
team and we want a chance to scream so fight on the farmer's fight! This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already... We have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Hello, football friends. This is Darren Hayes of the Pigskin Dispatch Podcast, and I'd like to invite you to the portal of positive football history, Pigskin Dispatch and pigskindispatch.com. We talk about everything that centers around the game of American football, expert discussions, the origins of the games, the great players, teams, and coaches, and more, and some great guests and insights from experts. We have new episodes three to four times a week, and you can find us on sportshistorynetwork.com, pigskindispatch.com, or your favorite podcast provider. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.